0: Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we ask that you would comfort us with your word and by your presence and with your spirit. Lord, let your truth be a salve and let it grant us courage. Father, do what is impossible for a mortal man and cause our hearts to hear your word as it truly is. It's the word of God and not the word of man. Let us find refuge in the shadow of your wings. Find safety in your providence. Let us run to you and find rest. Prepare our hearts now, oh God, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, friends, welcome again. I'm Pastor Gordon, if you don't know me. And uh, we're back now in our study in the book of John, and so if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to follow along with us. We're working through the Gospel of John together. We come now to John chapter 9, and we're going to take it in at least two chunks. I want to take some time today to focus on these first seven verses, which are admittedly probably one of the harder passages of Scripture, and I know that for some of us, what we're going to be discussing today could touch on a really sensitive point. I just pray that you would be open to what the Lord has to say in his word. And if there's any way that I or any of the elders can support you, particularly if you're facing a particular kind of suffering in your life, or if, or if this comes across in some way that really strikes your heart hard, please seek us out. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to help you. We'd love to support you and show you the love of Christ. This whole entire passage in John chapter 9 is about spiritual perception. The whole chapter is about spiritual perception. John contrasts physical blindness with obstinate spiritual blindness. He contrasts the physical blindness of a literally blind man with the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees the religious rulers, in the face of God's amazing and glorious works. And so today I wanna just focus on these first few verses and we're gonna reflect on this main idea. So if you have a handout or we'll see, our main theme for today is that in God's providence, suffering is a means of grace to reveal his glory. In God's providence, in God's care for his saints, in God's loving attendance to the needs of his church, suffering is a means of grace to reveal God's glory. So let's briefly summarize what we heard read this morning. We're not looking at the full passage yet. We'll come back next week and we'll examine the full chapter. But just what we heard today, we're looking at verses 1 through 7, mostly actually... 1 through 5 even. In verse 1, as he, that is Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. What we notice there, and we'll draw some more out on this, is that Jesus saw the man born blind. Then in verse 2, Jesus seeing the man born blind causes a response. The disciples ask, what's the cause? They asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. And then in verses 3 through 5, whereas we might expect any number of answers from Jesus, he gives them and us a challenging answer and then enjoins the disciples to a kind of fervent urgency. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Friends, this passage is one of the reasons, uh, I'm gonna say, I could say this about many passages, but this is one of the passages that provides one of the reasons that I love the Bible so very much, and I hope you do too. The Bible simply does not avoid hard things. I don't know where I would be or how I would navigate even the minor suffering, and I have not really experienced substantial suffering in my life, but I don't know where I would be and how I would navigate the, even the minor suffering that I have faced if I did not have the hope and the instruction of God's holy word. So today I want to advance the argument from this text that God is not only sovereign over, but purposeful in all suffering. That God is not only sovereign over, but purposeful in all suffering even and including the suffering that is caused by disability even at birth I believe God does this to show that suffering ultimately becomes meaningful only in relation to God and his glory and that for the saints of God those who trust in God's promises suffering actually becomes a means of God's grace. It's a way that God changes his people to make them more like him and to show them himself and to unite them with himself. And so we're gonna work through this in five steps. So the first is that we're gonna notice that God really, truly sees the disabled and so should we. God really, truly sees the disabled and so should we. Then we're gonna see that sin is the universal and immediate but not necessarily particular or ultimate cause of disability. And we're going to unpack that sentence. It's a complicated sentence. Sin is the universal and immediate but not, necessary, not necessarily particular or ultimate cause of disability. Thirdly, that God is not only sovereign over but he purposefully ordains all suffering. God is not only sovereign over, but he purposefully ordains all suffering. Therefore, for suffering only becomes meaningful in relation to God. And then fifthly, we should join in the purposeful and good work of God to declare his glory. Shall we step in? First point, God really sees the disabled, and so should we. God really sees the disabled and so should we. It struck me how the story begins. Now the main point of chapter 9, the main point of this story is to demonstrate the disabling nature of the Pharisees' spiritual blindness. That is the main point of this story. And the way that that's shown is through the example of a given man's physical blindness. They're just as incapable as he was of seeing trees. The Pharisees are incapable of seeing the glory and the goodness of God. But what sets the whole story in motion is not the disciples' question, even though we're we're probably drawn to their question. We think that's what kicks the story off, but it's not. Instead, it's Jesus' spiritual and compassionate perception. Look at verse 1. As he, that is Jesus, passed by, he... Jesus saw a man blind from birth. Jesus, not the disciples, perceived the man and he perceived his suffering. In fact, Jesus' perception of the man is gonna bookend this whole story, right? If you've read the story, you know that the story concludes by Jesus going and finding the man after the man has been cut out of the household of Israel. So the bookends of this story are Jesus truly seeing and caring about this man. Now, friends, it's natural for us to avoid suffering, to look the other way, literally, to Sometimes this is because It reminds us of our own frailty. Sometimes when we look at somebody, sometimes it's because we feel guilty because the Lord seems to have given us some degree of ability that he has deprived someone else of. Sometimes it's just because we don't understand. There are many reasons, but as Christians, we are called to live differently. We are called to follow the example of Christ who sees the disabled and the suffering and cares about them. So scripture here is calling us, I think passively, underneath the surface, calling us to see everyone that we meet, even and especially those that are different from us, to see them specifically as a dignified, noble creature made in the image of God. I believe that a living faith flowing from a genuine experience of God's grace enables us to offer a genuine care and support to hurting people. Obviously, this passage applies as here to physical suffering. That's the obvious implication. This man is suffering physically. But I think it would be wise for us to take a moment and remember that God sees the needs of invisible or less visible Suffering. I think the principle of compassionate perception applies to emotional suffering or relational suffering, what we nowadays often call psychological suffering. One of my former congregants uh, benefited tremendously from our congregation's support for her emotional suffering. She struggled with several psychological diagnoses. She struggled regularly with depression And one of the things she wanted the congregation to know was that part of her coming to Christ had to do with the congregation seeing her emotional needs and loving her despite her depression and supporting her in the midst of her depression. It's an invisible condition, but it's equally sorrowful. Our love helped her to understand and trust in God's grace and care. Surely we cannot solve The problems or the pains of every person that we meet, much less the whole world. And we often feel overburdened in this modern day where we are fed the sufferings of the entire globe on our television. We can see suffering pervasively throughout the world. But as Christians, though we cannot solve everyone's suffering, though we can't even really in many cases solve any one person's suffering, we are called to be aware of it, to be concerned about it, especially the hurts and the needs of our neighbors. We think of the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Jesus tells that story to illustrate who is a neighbor, the guy that's lying in the dirt on your way to work. Like that one, that's your neighbor right there. to love those that God, in his grace, puts in our path, we're called to be the first to see the broken and the brokenhearted. Secondly, sin is the universal and immediate, but not necessarily particular or ultimate cause of disability. Look at verse 2. The disciples ask an important question. Who sinned? this man, or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, it doesn't strike us probably as a particularly sensitive question. This is a fundamental assumption. There are two answers here. You know, either he or his parents sinned. But it was culturally acceptable. It wouldn't have been a foreign question in that context. Now, as Christians, we understand that there is a universal connection between sin and and suffering. What we mean by that is that in the broadest sense possible, all suffering is the result of Adam's first sin against God. That's what we mean. We mean that in some sense, all the brokenness of nature, of the world, of our bodies, of our experiences, of our families, in one sense, all of it is because Adam rebelled against God. We also know that there is no such thing as suffering without any guilt. you could look at Romans chapter one and two, or th- you could look at Romans chapter one and two, or chapter three, and we would see that all of us are sinners by nature and by choice, and we demonstrate that we are part of Adam's family. We do as our father did. We sin against God and we involve ourselves in the brokenness that Adam brought upon all creation. But if we step beyond that universal connection, we have to tread more carefully. The Bible does offer particular examples where individual or specific sins do indeed result in suffering. For instance, we can think of Miriam's revolt in Numbers 12. She says, has, has the Lord only spoken to Moses? Has he not also spoken to me? And the Lord strikes her with leprosy because she sinned. Or we can think of the paralytic that we already studied in John chapter 5, verse 14, where Jesus warns him after healing him, go and stop sinning lest something worse will happen to you, implying that the reason he was in the condition he was in had to do with sin. We could think of 1 Corinthians 11.30 where Paul warns the congregation that because of their failure to practice a respectful discernment about the body and blood of Jesus Christ in the the celebration of communion, that some of them are sick and some of them have died. That their specific and deliberate and purposeful refusal to practice communion rightly has resulted in God's specific wrathful condemnation. But past those specific examples, we should beware associating particular kinds of suffering as the result of specific sins. We all know, for instance, Job, the whole book, to a certain extent, stands and falls on this question. His friends come to him and say, surely, your suffering is because you sinned. And Job says, no, I swear, I didn't. (laughs) And the book continues. (laughs) So when I say that sin is the universal cause of suffering, I mean that all suffering is a result of Adam's sin. If Adam had not sinned, and if we were not by nature involved in his sin, there would be no suffering and there would be no death. When I say that sin is the immediate cause of suffering, I mean that it is the most obvious cause. When I say that it is not necessarily the particular cause of suffering, I mean that we cannot always draw a connection between one sin and resulting suffering, though that does sometimes occur. And when I say that sin is not necessarily the ultimate cause of disability, I mean that there is a deeper cause. Yes, deeper than Adam's sin. That deeper cause ultimately reflects God's sovereign purpose because Jesus denies both the options that the disciples offer him. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. And instead, he supplies an answer that on the first glance is shocking, but which I think if we work with it will yield some encouraging fruit. So let's compare these sentences. The disciples say literally, and that doesn't mean we should translate it this way, but this will help us see the grammar. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, in order that he was born blind? They're drawing a direct grammatical connection. In other words, the cause of his blindness was a particular sin, either his or his parents, say the disciples. But Jesus replies, neither this man sinned, nor his parents, but rather, and he uses the exact same grammatical construction, in order that the cause, in order that the works of God might be displayed in him, we can assume the verb, it's the same verb, he was born blind. Jesus uses an equivalent grammatical structure to clearly replace their supplied cause, sin, with a deeper, more basic, and ultimately more encouraging cause. In short, Jesus says, sin is not ultimately in control of this man's suffering or destiny. Sin is not ultimately in control of this man's suffering or destiny. Instead, God is. The deeper, the most basic, the ultimate cause of suffering, is God's sovereign purpose. And that is why I am arguing that suffering becomes meaningful only in relationship to God and to his glory. If we cut God out of the equation, if we don't see God associated with our suffering, our suffering will be, in some sense, meaningless. So let's bring us to our third point then. God, then, is not only sovereign over, but he purposefully ordains all suffering. Now, the first question that we have to address, which is the question that probably immediately comes to our minds, or I hope it comes to our minds, is, is God unjust to do this? Certainly, our culture and our society would answer, absolutely. God cannot be good And cause suffering. Those those two things cannot coexist in the same sentence. So, the first point, the first subpoint here, sorry, that we need to draw out is that God is not unjust to ordain suffering within a sinful creation. We need to first remember ourselves and to remember the state of creation under Adam's sin. We need to first acknowledge that sin demands God's vengeance, sin merits suffering. And all of us, by nature and by choice, are sinners. Our sin demands God's righteous wrath. We wrongly imagine that every human is at least born innocent. Whether we inherited this from uh, John Locke, who, who argued that every human is just a tabula rasa, a blank slate on which things are written, he starts out with a clean plate. And surely small children are especially vulnerable and precious in God's sight, but that does not mean that they are free from sin. Psalm 51 verse 5 says, Surely I was brought forth in iniquity. Paul quotes that in Romans 3 as one of a list of proofs of our totally depraved nature. Sin deserves punishment. And that punishment ultimately is death in this life and hell in the next. We can see that in Genesis 2.17 or Romans 6.23 that not one of us deserves to live. We must begin our consideration of a theology of suffering from that posture, or else the Bible's message will make no sense. The Bible assumes that we are all sinners by nature and choice, that God is right and just if he were to punish us. So God is not unjust to ordain suffering within a sinful creation. We deserve suffering. But, then too, we must see that God claims to be the ultimate ordaining cause of particular disability and even suffering. Listen to what God says to Moses in response to Moses' protestations. You remember, God calls Moses, sends him back to Egypt to speak to Pharaoh, and and Moses protests. And he says, no, not me. I can't talk. I'm scared. I, I won't do a good job. You don't want me. You want somebody else? And And God, it says, eventually got angry with Moses. And he says, in chapter 4, verse 11, The Lord God said to him, Who made man's mouth? Who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Or hear David. When David writes in Psalm 139, verse 13, For you, God, created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. So we are all of us born in sin. We are all of us deserving death and hell. But we are also, all of us, shaped individually and particularly by the hand of God. Bearing indelible marks of his image and dignity. There is not a single human being on the planet that was not knit together by God and who does not bear the immense value of God's image that is printed upon them. Make no mistake, while Jesus says more than this, he is clearly saying, in agreement with Moses, this man was born blind. According to God's purpose to display God's glory. So, thirdly, God, you know, secondly, He claims to be the ultimate ordaining cause of particular disability. Then, thirdly, God purposefully, not arbitrarily, ordains suffering. God purposefully, not arbitrarily, ordains suffering. Suffering in God's providence has a role. So let's just consider two other examples. The first would be in Galatians 4:13. Paul is recounting to the Galatian church how he ended up there. He says, "You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I first preached the gospel to you." Paul is not crediting this as happenstance. He doesn't say, it just so happened that I happened to get sick, and you happened to hear the gospel, and you happened to believe it. He is saying the exact opposite. He is saying that in God's sovereign providence, God saw to it that in the overflow of a sinful creation, within the context of a broken world that is submitted under Adam's sin, I came ill so that I would preach the gospel to you, so that you would hear the gospel, so that you would know Christ. This is to indicate God has a purpose in suffering. This was, this was not something moved by unforeseen circumstances that God worked. Rather, God deliberately, purposefully evangelized Galatia. Or second, we can think of Paul's thorn in the flesh, described in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Three times Paul asks to be relieved of this almost certainly physical suffering, and God's response is, no. My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness, meaning God wants to show his power through the weakness of Paul. So it's purposeful. And both of these examples demonstrate that God does not merely take the occasion of suffering to advance his purposes. i say that again. He does not merely take the occasion of suffering to advance his purposes, meaning suffering doesn't just happen on a separate continuum that God happens to then try and interact with. No. God uses suffering. He ordains suffering to achieve his purpose. As Paul says in Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, his purposes are not always readily apparent, meaning we might even say that in most suffering, it is very hard to discern God's immediate purpose. We want to ask the question, why? Why, God? And we would like it if God, well, I don't know if we would like it. We think we would like it. I think I would like it. If God would say to me, no, you know, Paul, no, Gordon, My power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. Oh, okay, that's what you're at work here doing. (laughs) But many times his immediate purpose is not clear. But we can infer a few general purposes from Scripture about God's purpose for suffering. In the case of those who do not believe. And friend, if you don't believe, if you're here gathered with us, welcome, thank you for joining us. This is an incredibly important thing for you to hear because God means to use suffering in your life to draw you to him. In the case of those who do not believe, their suffering is a warning, a warning of the ultimate effect of sin. It's a cautionary impulse to drive them toward repentance and to trust in the only one who can and will redeem suffering on the last day. But in the case of the believer, God's broad purpose in suffering is as here that the works of God might be displayed. Here, this means God intended to heal this man's disability and thus to bring about a temporary end to that particular form of suffering in his life. But friends, we know that that man also died, just as Lazarus, who was raised, did die again. And they are waiting for that eternal creation, that unending new world where Christ will give them true sight and raise them to everlasting life. Friend, if you are not a believer, your sin is like signposts on the road that tell you falling rock up ahead. No, seriously, falling rock up ahead. No, like, slow down, because rocks fall. And when they do, they crush cars. No, really, honestly, rock fall ahead. Like in Colorado, we'd have these massive uh, snow avalanches that would just completely wipe out a road. And there were these gates that would come down over the highway and say, the road is closed, can't go through. Why? Because avalanche. And sometimes some people got it into their head that that gate did not apply to them that they could get around it and that they could get through the avalanche and that sometimes did not end well for them. And friend, all likeness aside, God's immediate and momentary suffering is like the gate across the road saying, road closed, this road leads to death. This road does not lead to me. Don't follow it. Turn back from it. We know that from Paul's accounts that even though God does sometimes heal suffering, this is not universally what is meant by God displaying his works in someone's life. In Paul's case, God was glorified to reveal his strength through Paul's continuing weakness. That God was gloriously revealed in Paul's faithful endurance despite physical suffering. So in both cases, it is clear that God's purpose for suffering and for healing go beyond the one that is suffering. These circumstances were providentially ordained, one for our good as readers. We can look back, as we are doing right now, we can consider the circumstances of Paul or this man, and we can be moved to a right understanding and a trust in God. So these things were not just for them. Paul did not suffer just for Paul. He didn't suffer just for Galatia or Corinth. He suffered so that Lima, so the Grace Community Church can read and say, God has a purpose in my suffering. I can see God's glory in it because it was, it was so for Paul. Secondly, they were for the good of the Pharisees, who even though they didn't turn aside from their purpose path, it was for their good. They saw a warning right in front of them. They saw God's miraculous powers displayed. They had an opportunity Thirdly, it was for the good of the disciples who found their inherited cultural theology challenged by the enormity of Jesus' claims. So scripture teaches that God providentially orders all things such that even suffering becomes his purposeful instrument to advance and display his glory. Fourthly, therefore, suffering only becomes meaningful in relation to God and his glory. If what we've argued is true, then suffering only becomes meaningful in relation to God and his glory. Again, Jesus' reply in verse 3 tells us, this was done, or he says, God worked this so that God's works might be revealed, so that we could see God's glory more clearly and accurately. In God's providence, suffering is a painful means to put on display God's surpassing glory and our joyful dependence on it. I, I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna, miss, uh, I'm gonna pa- miss, miss the paraphrase, but I know that uh, Satan, as he comes before God in Job, and he's... He's already laden, Job, with all these sufferings. See, he holds fast his confession. It just, oh, it rankles him. Friends, in suffering, one of the ways that we can show the glory of God is when others look at us and they say, why are you holding on to this silly faith of yours? This God that you claim can heal you and he won't heal you. You've prayed to him and he won't answer. Why do you hold on to such a God? by our perseverance in the midst of suffering, we show of what greater value God is than our own physical comfort. Now, friends, our nation counts our physical comfort as possibly our most prized possession, but God says he is more valuable than your comfort. He is more valuable than your wealth. He is more valuable than literally anything else. And when you hold fast to God in the midst of suffering, You say to the world, my God is more glorious and he is more valuable. I would rather have him than corporeal integrity. I would rather have him than comfort. I would rather have him than riches. I would rather have him than food. I would rather have him than life itself. And that is a beautiful thing. This means then That if suffering is only the immediate result of sin, but it is ultimately within the scope of God's sovereign purpose, then if we are to understand and navigate its dark waters, we must learn to see our suffering, Gordon's suffering, as within the scope of God's sovereign providence, as his instrument and not an accident Please do not hear me say in any of this that we ought not to pray for healing for ourselves or for others who suffer. No, may God be graciously pleased to relieve all those who suffer. But let us not mistake the presence of suffering for the absence of God. Do not mistake the presence of suffering for the absence of God. Again let us be taught by Paul who regarded his physical suffering he sought remedy but he learnt that God meant to humble him and to teach him to rely more fully on God that God prized self-control and humility higher than Paul's physical comfort and that by reliance God would put his amazing grace on display for the good of others. Many of you hear about Charles Spurgeon, you know that he suffered profound physical pain over the course of his life, numerous afflictions, rheumatoid arthritis, and gout, which ultimately conspired to kill him. He writes When the gold knows why and wherefore it is in the fire, it will thank the refiner for putting it into the crucible. It will find a sweet satisfaction even in the flames. Because when we discern the purpose of our suffering, it leads us to godly perseverance. Suffering, then, is a means by which Christ draws near to us. Spurgeon goes on to preach, and it's one of my favorite sermons. He begins this morning, being myself more than usually compassed with infirmities, meaning he was feeling a lot sicker than usual. I desire to speak as a weak and suffering preacher of that high priest who is full of compassion... And my longing is that any who are of low in spirit or faint or despondent and even out of the way may take heart to approach the Lord Jesus. Jesus is touched not with a feeling of your strength but of your infirmity. And down here, poor, feeble nothings affect the heart of their great high priest on high who is crowned with glory and honor as the mother feels the weakness of her babe. So does Jesus feel with the the poorest, the saddest, and the weakest of his chosen. Suffering, then, is a means by which we are drawn to Christ. We identify with Christ, but it's also a means by which we are made more like Christ. Spurgeon goes on to say that though our trials may come from the world, the flesh, and the devil, they are overseen and ordained by God who uses them to bring us closer to Christ. If even Jesus learned obedience and was made perfect to fulfill God's purpose by suffering, how can we expect to be made like Jesus if we do not share in suffering? Romans 8 verses 16 through 17 says, We are children of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.3 to share in sufferings as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And when he encourages the churches in Antioch in Acts 14.22, he says he strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So suffering sanctifies us and others. And suffering identifies Christ with us, and us with Christ, making us more like Christ. And more than this, suffering gives us sympathy for others and teaches us compassion. In all of this, it is by the very nature of distress that such pain will awaken us to our need for change. Pain may not always be the best teacher, but it is sometimes the necessary one. It is often in the worst of situations that we are made the readiest to receive and respond to God. So friends, be encouraged. If suffering were only chaotic, if it were only coincidence or accidents that God somehow had to wrangle into his good purpose, it would be meaningless. But if God's sovereign grace is ordering all things, even our suffering, then there is meaning in the madness. There is purpose in the pain. It is possible to faithfully bear up under suffering by resting and trusting in these as the prescribed remedies of an all-wise and eternally good physician. I remember I had a sweet doctor in Colorado. He was a dear friend of mine. We would run and we'd pray and at one point, my right foot gained this enormous pain, and I don't know where it came from, and we tried different ideas about what the issue was. Oh, maybe it's this, maybe it's that, but ultimately, we just decided it wouldn't show up on x-rays, wouldn't show up on any sort of scan, and so this doctor said to me, well, you know, I can just go looking, and I said, all right, and he's like, now, if I do this, I mean, I could scar your foot. There could be all sorts of things. You may not walk the same ever again, you know, da 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 The reason that I said, okay, go ahead, is because I trusted him. I trusted him. I, I wouldn't trust a guy with a knife on the street to just go and, you know, dig in my foot and try and figure out what was wrong. I trusted Dr. Joel. If we trust the Lord. We know that he's working in us and that the pain is to get to a remedy that's deeper and more valuable. It hurt quite a bit when he was going in there, but he found the problem and he rooted it out. And I was able to walk then more ably for it. When we willingly endure suffering for the sake of the joy that we have in Christ, God is glorified in us because we are satisfied with him. So let's summarize. I know this is a heavy one. Christians should be the first to see others suffering, and we should compassionately intervene whenever possible and whenever appropriate. Secondly, disability is an immediate result of sin at work in the world, but it is ultimately under God's control. This is one of the chief reasons why Christians should oppose any and all eugenics in the strongest of terms. We esteem every baby from conception as the purposeful working of an almighty God and imbued with creaturely dignity. Disability is a result of sin, yes, but God purposes to display through our weakness, through our joys, through our words, through our silence, through everything, his works and his grace. Thirdly, that God is able to forestall, ease and remove, ordain all our sufferings, so we should pray for relief. We should trust God and accept that what he comes is ultimately within his providence and praise him. Because what he gives us is always for our good and for his glory, even suffering. Fourthly, suffering, limited and disabled human beings are not any more than anyone else spiritually disadvantaged. If anything, the point of this message is that the Pharisees are far worse off. Though physically seeing, they are spiritually blind and they're cut off from God's grace. And this means that to be disabled but to have God is far better than to be whole-bodied without him. That is not to make light of disability or suffering. And I, of all people, who enjoy the right use of my body. I have to be really careful. I do not mean to make light of disability or suffering, but to declare unflinching confidence in the all-surpassing worth of God, even and in spite of suffering. So, fifthly, as Christians, when we endure suffering by grace with faith, we proclaim our hope and our confidence that God will not allow suffering to endure. We proclaim that the cross comes before the crown, but the crown is coming. And if suffering is an instrument of His will in this life, it is done away with in the next. And we rejoice in the hope that God will make all things new, that He will wipe away every tear, that the gospel believing heart says, it will not always be this way. But God will make us whole, whether it be in this life or the next. And so fifth and finally, we should join, while we still can, in the purposeful work of God to declare his glory and praise. If you look briefly at verse 4, you see, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Friends, God has graciously and purposefully allowed us our lives each of us with our strengths each of us with our limitations what are you doing with what god has purposefully given to you for the sake of his glory and grace we were created to enjoy and display the glory of god to redeem the time because the days are evil every single person that you meet is living in the dusk of their existence We don't have the means to support every suffering person we meet, but this passage invites us to ask, how am I responding to my own suffering? Do I let pain drive me deeper in dependence and delight in God? And two, how am I responding to the suffering of others? Am I faithfully and compassionately serving my hurting neighbors? Am I working while it is day? Friends, I say all this and I hope you hear it, as a loving encouragement. I want all of us to face suffering not as the absence of God, but as his purposeful providence. I want us to face suffering seeing in and by the gospel of Jesus Christ with kindness and faith in this life and hope for renewal in the next. I want to share with you just one verse of one of my favorite hymns that you can be sure some point we're all going to sing. I won't make you do it today. <laughs> whatever my God ordains is right, his holy will abideth. I will be still, whate'er he does, and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me, that I shall not fall. And so to him, I leave it all. And so to him, I leave it all. Amen. Let's pray. God, have mercy on your people. Do remember that we are dust, that our frame is feeble. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Oh God, plant your word in our heart as an inexorable seed of that new life. And give us the hope, give us the comfort, give us the sustenance, the strength and the grace to so endure whatever sufferings you lay in our path by trusting you that we display and put on ever increasing display before all the world your inestimable worth. God, cause us to see your glory and to love you and to wait for that day when you will wipe away every tear, knowing that you have counted every tear, you have kept them in your bottle, every tossing in the night, you know them all and you will pay them back in the next kingdom, in eternal life. Oh God, unite us to that one purpose and we ask it for Jesus' sake.